0: Today, we are starting a brand new series, a series called Us For Them. It's a series we are very excited about. We're gonna start the series off with a little bit of uh, crowdsource polling, okay? So get your polling hand ready. I'm gonna ask you to participate here. Get your polling hand ready. Uh, How many of you feel like over the past few months, let's say, your life has been filled with more stress and more anger unusual. Anybody feel like over the last few months you have more stress and more anger? This looks about right. Somewhere like 60 to 70% of Americans would say that right now. For various reasons experts are telling us that we are in the middle of what they're calling a stress and anger incubator. Sounds serious, doesn't it? For various reasons our lives are being filled with more and more stress and more and more anger. And that probably doesn't come as news to many of you. On May 25th, 2020, two months into a pandemic situation, the likes of which none of us have ever experienced unless you are over 100 and lived through the Spanish flu, um, George Floyd was murdered. In the three and a half months since Floyd's murder, we have experienced social unrest unlike anything most of us have experienced ever. All of us haven't experienced in generations. And then on top of the huge confusion surrounding the pandemic, the anger surrounding Floyd's murder, we've also experienced severe financial hardships as so many of us have lost our jobs, had spouses who have lost jobs, had huge cuts in pay. To put it all very scientifically, okay, the last few months have really sucked. Can I get an amen? This is how the sociologists are saying it. The last few months really sucked. Kids, don't say suck, but sometimes it's the only word that will do. And so about a month ago, I'm sitting on my back porch trying to get ready for this elder call that we have later in the day. And for the life of me, I just could not focus. You ever had one of those moments? And if you know me, you know that I don't struggle with focusing. Like instead of attention deficit disorder, my wife says I have attention excess disorder. Like I have Ritalin naturally coursing through my body. I'm like, is there more? That's all, that's all they're gonna say. And yeah, that morning for the life of me, I could not focus. And eventually I realized that I couldn't focus because I was just so angry. I was angry. And I was angry at everybody about everything. I was angry about the murder of George Floyd. What senseless person would not be? And I was angry that good police officers who I know, who are a part of our VISTA family, were being vilified and treated like they were all members of the KKK or something. And I was angry about the pandemic and angry it was taking so long and angry the whole thing become so partisan. And I was angry people were accusing us of opening too soon, that people were accusing us of opening too late. You know, this bed's too hard. This bed's too soft. This porch is too hot. This porch is too cold. Make up your mind, Goldilocks. I was angry at everybody about everything except for my new baby girl. She was still perfect. But the rest of you were my enemies. And I was sure of it, right? It was me against everybody. You ever had one of those? You're like, it's me and everybody and I'll take you all on. And the funny thing about anger is that it kind of feels bad, right? It kind of feels yucky, but it also kind of feels good, doesn't it? I mean, I'll admit it. I love being angry and looking down on people. Anybody else? You kind of enjoy being angry and looking down on people? There's a few of you, you know, you're being honest. That's good. Um, In his masterpiece novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky puts it like this. He says it sometimes feels very good to take offense, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, I love telling myself that I'm right and they're wrong, and I'm smart and they're stupid, and I'm woke and they're asleep, and I'm biblical and they're unbiblical. And there's a place for anger. After all, we know Jesus got angry once or twice that we know of. And yet the problem with so much of our anger is that it very easily mutates into something that James, the brother of Jesus, called the anger of man. The anger of man. Here's how he put it in James 1, 19 to 20. It says, everybody must be swift to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man cannot accomplish God's justice, God's righteousness. And so what exactly is this, this anger of man? Well, I think it's best explained, actually, by this, uh, this old cartoon that was in The New Yorker years ago. I came across it recently. All right, let's study it here and see what we can learn about the anger of man. So what do we have here? Well, <clears throat> we got these two dogs in very nice suits sitting at what appears to be a very nice bar. One sips on a looks like a martini, while the other sips on a pint of beer. Now, the context clues are telling us that these dogs have done well in life, right? Things have gone their way. They've made it. They've made it to the top. Look at them. They've done well. And yet they also have these devious little grins on their faces. Do you see their devious little grins? Oh, yeah. And those devious little grins tell us that these well-to-do dogs are up to no good. And then we read the caption, and it all comes together. It's not enough that we succeed. Cats must also fail. And, of course, the idea is that these successful dogs, they can't simply be satisfied in their own success because the failure and defeat of their enemies, the cats, is even more important to them than their own success. And the thing that this funny, silly, yet painfully perceptive cartoon sheds a very uncomfortable light on is that our world is fueled by antagonisms, that we enjoy having somebody to be against that our identities are wrapped up in having certain enemies that most all of us have bought into this story of the world that I like to call the story of us versus them. All right, us versus them. And you know this story very well because you hear it all the time and you probably tell it to yourself every single day. All right, here are a few of the different forms that it can take. So my my spouse doesn't understand me or appreciate all the sacrifices I make for the family. My boss is selfish and witless, and I deserve his job. My kids are ungrateful and I deserve better. Those socialist Democrats are trying to ruin the country. Those racist Republicans are trying to ruin the country. Liberals want to kick God out of schools, take everybody's guns and pave the way for the big secular government takeover. Conservatives say they want to make America great again, but secretly they just want to make America white again. And on... And on and on we could go with the stories. But you get the idea. Our identities are deeply shaped by the people and groups that we have imagined ourselves to be against. That the most important thing about you is being against them. That most all of us have bought into this story of the world that we would call us versus them. And what Dave and I hope to help us see... And really understand over the course of this series is that, y'all, the most important thing about you can't be being against them. The most important thing about you cannot be being against them, whomever them is for you. What we hope to help us see is that the story Jesus tells about the world is not us versus them, but is rather us for them, because on Jesus' brother's authority, the anger of man cannot accomplish God's justice. So, if you got your Bibles, grab them. We're going to go back in time a little bit and try to understand how we got here. We're going to let the Bible shed some light on how our world became such an antagonistic place, on how the most important thing about you became being against them. Genesis 3, we'll read verses 1 through 13. Then we're going to read a little bit in Genesis 4. It'll be up here on the screen if you want to follow along. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, Hey, has God said you can't eat fruit from any tree of the garden? And the woman said, to the serpent Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden. We may eat from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden. God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. The serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to the man and said, hey, where are you, Adam? He said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Boy, who you been talking to? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Skip over to chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Now, the man Adam had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a child named Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted? But if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and he killed him, right? Genesis 4 there. So most of us are probably at least somewhat familiar with these two stories, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden, it's all good, and the serpent slithers in and offers this accusation. He says, hey, has God really said you can't eat any fruit from any tree in the garden? That seems a little restrictive. And of course, that's the exact opposite of what God actually said, right? Because what God actually said is, hey, you can eat fruit from every tree in the garden except for one. But then Satan goes even further and he says, well, you know, God's just holding out on you. He knows that if you eat that fruit, then you'll become like him. And God doesn't want any competition. And so then in that most fateful of all actions, Adam and Eve take and eat the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree. And why did they do it? Why did the first sin happen? Well, according to Genesis 3, the first sin was hostility between humans and God, Right? It was Adam and Eve imagining that God was their enemy instead of their friend. Okay. So that's the first sin, hostility between humans and God. And if that's the first sin, then the second sin is what? Well, it's, it's hostility between Adam and Eve because after they turn on God, the first thing they do is what? They turn on each other. God's like, Adam, did you eat the fruit of that tree? And Adam's like, you know, in typical manly fashion, duh, My wife made me do it. You know, and if you think about it, God, actually you made her, I did not ask for her, so it's kind of mostly your fault, a little bit of her fault, definitely not my fault. And God turns to Eve, Eve, what do you have to say for yourself? Uh, but, well, I mean, the snake made me do it. So Adam and Eve make God their enemy. They then immediately make each other their enemy. And the very next thing that happens when they leave the garden is their children get in a fight. Does that sound about right? First road trip in the Bible, first fight between siblings, sound right? And a brother murders a brother and people say the bible isn't realistic it's the most realistic story i've ever heard and from here the hostility just picks up momentum as it snowballs down the slopes of history now john calvin once said that the human heart is an idol making factory which means we're constantly churning out new and unworthy things to love But what we learn here from Genesis 3 and 4 is that the human heart is also an enemy-making factory. This right here, this is an enemy-making factory, which means we're constantly searching for people to be against, that many of us don't know who we are unless we know who we're against. And this, my fellow antagonistic humans, is human history in a nutshell. I'll explain all history in four words. It's all their fault, right? It's all their fault. You don't need to read any of those 1,000-page history textbooks. Kids, you can skip history class from now until eternity. Tell them your pastor said they could because I just explained all of human history to you. It's all their fault. So to summarize, here's how we got here. Satan is the original antagonist, the father of hostility. And we, well, we are his antagonistic sons and daughters. That's who we are. Satan whispers antagonisms into our ears, tells us that they are the problem, that we're right and they're wrong, and we're smart and they're stupid, and we're woke and they're asleep, we're biblical and they're unbiblical, and on and on and on these antagonisms go. And if we're brave enough to be honest with ourselves, which I know is hard, then the really scary and sobering possibility that we have to consider is that what we thought was the voice of God in our lives was actually the voice of Satan. Okay, I'll say that again. That voice in your head, it's definitely in my head, that voice in your head that tells you that you're right and they're wrong and anybody who disagrees with you is just unrighteous or stupid or something like that, that they're the problem and you're the solution, that voice in your head, that is not the voice of God. That's not how God talks. That's not what God says. That voice is the voice of Satan. That's how Satan talks. That's what Satan says. And I wanna lean in. A little bit here. Over the last few months, I have heard a lot of, um, you know, like conspiracy theories, and I get it. We're all bored, and there's a lot going on, and we got to pass the time somehow. I, I, I get it. And if you know me, you know I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. But I'll tell you one conspiracy I do believe in, because it is taught from the very first to the very last page of Scripture. Here's a conspiracy I believe in: Satan is on a mission. A demonic, spiteful, relentless mission throughout the ages. A mission to convince you that it's all their fault. There's a conspiracy at work in the world, all right, y'all. There is, okay. But it's not a conspiracy out there. No, it's a conspiracy in here. It's a conspiracy in here. Every single day, a conspiracy is at work in your heart. Every single day, Satan is at work in your heart telling you that you are right and righteous and everybody who disagrees with you is either stupid or immoral. Now, that's the conspiracy I believe in because I see it and I struggle with it Every single day. And that's why I don't want to talk about 5G cell phone towers or COVID conspiracies or the politics of wearing or not wearing a mask. This stuff's not interesting to me. What I want to talk about is the sinfully self-righteous and antagonistic conspiracy down deep in your heart and my heart too. That's the conspiracy that we should be concerned with. Do you remember at the beginning of this year when we walked through the book of 1 Corinthians? I know it seems like it was like 40 years ago. It's been dog years for the last few months, but it wasn't too long ago. We mentioned that one of the things this church in Corinth struggled with was divisiveness. Remember, they are always kind of putting themselves in these different little groups, and they are all telling themselves they're more spiritually mature than everybody else. And I called this kind of sneaky self-righteousness being fake deep. Right? That's my term for it. Being fake deep. And the idea is that when you think, you know, the problem is always that somebody or everybody else is shallow or immature, then the real problem is probably that you're being shallow and immature. Okay? But it's so hard to see that in the moment. I know that it is because Satan is in your ear, whispering antagonisms, confirming your righteousness. And yet scripture could not be more clear here. That antagonistic spirit that we think is a mark of our righteousness and maturity is consistently condemned in Scripture as a mark of our self righteous immaturity. That what we think is us standing up for righteousness is actually us expressing our self righteousness. That's what Scripture is going to say. All that to say, put all this together, okay? The primary problem for which you are responsible isn't them, it's you. The primary problem in this world that you are responsible for, it's not them, y'all. It is you. They are not the problem. You are not the problem. They are not the problem. I am the problem. Now, that's what Christian maturity sounds like. I'm the problem, not they're the problem. I love the way Paul puts this in Romans 7, verses 14 through 21. Listen to this. This is familiar. Let it sink in, though. Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh, man. I'm sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Anybody else? You, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I don't do, but I practice very evil that I don't want to do. But if I'm no longer the, very, the one doing the very thing I don't want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. See how was Paul saying, it's, it's me, I'm the problem, it's not somebody else. I found this picture the other day, I thought this was perfect. You know, we're all running around going, there's something wrong with the world, somebody's messing the world up. Yeah, somebody is, buddy. Look in the mirror. There's the culprit. I found them right in the mirror every single morning. A few months ago, I mentioned the somewhat surprising phenomenon wherein politics or ideology has become the most powerful source of disunity in modern American culture, surpassing even race, right? That 90% of Americans are now okay with interracial marriage. It's way up from 50 years ago. It's astonishing. Still got a ways to go, but it's incredible. It's that high at this point. But now 55% of Americans have a problem with interpolitical marriages. Now, whereas we used to say, no child of mine is going to marry a black man or a white man, now we say, no daughter of mine is going to marry a liberal. No son of mine is going to marry a conservative. If so, they get kicked out of the will, you know? And so let's just kind of call it like it is here. Many of us have imagined that we're in some kind of, you know, left versus right, liberal versus conservative, whatever versus whatever culture war where we must defeat them because they are the problem and we're the solution and of course the really funny thing about it is we always assume that God is on our side anybody else, like I've been in a lot of fights and arguments in my life and God is always on my side, it's weird how he always sides with me but here's the thing God is not on your side okay God is not on your side if if God is not on your side, if being on your side means God is not also on everybody else's side. Because there has never been a single human being in the whole history of the world who God is against or will ever be against, period, full stop. And that's the gospel, right? Romans 5, 6 and 8. Paul says, hey, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, not once we got it together, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God was for us even when we were against him. And God will still be for us even if we turn against him. And he has commanded us to do the same. Which is to say that if you are a Christian, then enemies are forbidden. They're forbidden. Now, people may still be against you. In fact, Jesus said they would be. Dave's going to talk about that next week. People may be against you. Sure, they will be. But you don't get to be against anybody. Period. And if you don't like it, I understand. I hate it. It's the most annoying part about being a Christian. But those orders, they come straight from the top, if you know what I mean. And I love the way Martin Niemöller puts this. He was uh, in the German Navy during World War I, initially supported Hitler during World War II before he realized what was going on, was almost executed by it, for it, by the Nazis. Later became a pastor, and in reflecting on his experience in World War I and II, here's what he said. He says, it's took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. Heck, God is not even the enemy of God's enemies. Let that sink in for a second. God is not the enemy of whoever you have imagined is your enemy. Because God is not even the enemy of God's enemies. Period. Again, that's the gospel. That's Romans 5, 6, and 8. A few months ago, we hosted a marriage event here Um, at the vista and at the very beginning of it the host stood up and asked what couple there had been married the longest and this couple right in front of Allison and me stood up and, and raised their hands and so the host asked them what was the biggest most important lesson you have learned in 45 years of marriage and so the wife pauses for a second she grabs the microphone she stands up looks at her husband his eyes are like this big you know And she says, the most important thing that I have learned in 45 years of marriage is that he is not my enemy. (laughs) He is not my enemy. And if you've been married more than about mm, five seconds, then you know exactly what she was talking about. Though to be clear, you don't have to be married to know what she was talking about. Because what she's talking about is what? It's Adam versus Eve and Cain versus Abel and everybody versus everybody. It's the antagonistic conspiracy at work deep in the heart of the world and every single human telling us that it's all their fault, telling you that they are the problem and you are the solution, right? That conspiracy. And yet while Satan whispers in our ears and tells us they are the problem, Jesus speaks to us down deep in the depths of our hearts. And he tells us the much deeper truth, doesn't he? You've heard it. He tells us what? He tells us that, well, you know, we're the problem. It's not them, me. We're the problem. He tells you that you're a sinner and a pain and you know what, I know I am. And yet we're loved and we're forgiven and we're accepted and we've been sent out into this world with a mission, a command to be unconditionally for Every single human that we meet. And it's not going to be easy. But our hope is that through the course of this series, this story of us versus them, this story that has such a sinfully strong grip on so many of us, could be replaced by the story of us for them. That we could look at those people or groups of people that we have imagined to be our enemies and truthfully say, they are not my enemy. Because the anger of man cannot accomplish God's justice. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for today. Hint of fall in the air. We come before you and we confess that we have given in to the antagonisms. That that first Hostility that was introduced into the world when Adam turned on Eve and Eve turned on Adam and Cain turned towards Abel that that's our story that's our family history and we have been doing it since the of time telling ourselves it's all their fault they're the problem we're the solution instead of doing what you would ask us to do which is to look within our own hearts see the evil and the hostility that is there and so we pray that in these moments God you would work on our hearts some of us all of us probably need to repent of some things today we need to repent of the ways we have put all the blame on everybody else we need to accept the liberating truth that you know what a lot of times we're the problem and we're to blame and we can freely and boldly confess that because we have always already been forgiven through jesus And so please help us as individuals, as families, and as a church to become people who let go of this antagonism to embrace the healing, reconciling, just work that you want to do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.